Welcome to episode 73 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. In this episode, we get to speak to retired agent Juan Jackson, who served in the FBI for 24 years. Most of Juan's bureau career was spent as an undercover agent working dangerous assignments in New York, Miami, Atlanta, New Orleans, and cities around the country. In this episode, Juan Jackson is interviewed about his long-term undercover role as J.J., a drug kingpin in the FBI Group 1 undercover case, Operation Shattered Shield. Juan, as his alter ego, JJ, hired corrupt members of the New Orleans Police Department to protect his large-scale cocaine operation. The dirty police officers maintained around-the-clock guard duty at the warehouse where the drugs were stored. During the investigation, FBI agents monitoring the wiretap of the police officers overheard some of them repeatedly threatening violence against J.J. and his couriers. The case ended abruptly when that FBI wiretap also revealed that one of the police officers, Lynn Davis, had ordered a hitman to murder a woman who had filed a police brutality complaint against him. In addition to murder, Davis, his partner Sammy Williams, and more than 20 other police officers were convicted of extorting bribes and offering protection to a drug dealer. Juan Jackson received the New Orleans Police Department's Medal of Valor for his contributions to Operation Shattered Shield. Post-retirement, Juan has worked as director of security for several NBA teams. Currently, he is director of team security for the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, I know I say this every episode, and I do mean it every episode, but this is a fascinating case. I mean, when you have a drug dealer coming to the FBI complaining about corrupt police officers, you know something serious is happening. This case has it all. Drugs, murder, sex. It definitely should be made into a book. It should be made into a movie. When I think about this case, I can't help but think about Denzel Washington in Training Day. In episode 72, which was part one of my interview with Juan Jackson, we got to learn from him what it was like to be an undercover agent and the methods that he used to work with informants and cooperating witnesses to be introduced to the bad guys, to that criminal element, and how he was able to fit right in. In part two, we'll get deep into the case. You will be shocked at the violence and the illegal activities these New Orleans police officers engaged in. Before we get started, I just want to run through some names so that you can stay on track. The case agent, the person running the case and using Juan as his undercover agent was Stan Hatton, the original drug dealer who came to the FBI and introduced Juan to the corrupt police officers was Skaboo. 
The main police officers were Lynn Davis, Sammy Williams, and Larry Smith. And the only police officer in the New Orleans Police Department who was aware of this long-term undercover investigation was Internal Affairs Sergeant Willie Davis. I want to thank those listeners who have taken the time to pick up a copy of my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. When you pick up a copy of Pay to Play for yourself or as a gift for someone you know loves crime fiction, you're helping to defray the cost for me to continue to produce ad-free content on a weekly basis. Pay to Play is a great read. Thank you. Now here's the show. Now we're having two things run simultaneously. We've just recruited another six. We're incorporating that new group and we're starting to expand it four days, five days, six days to use everybody we can to continue to grow the operation and find as many illegal cops. Uh, we're hearing a little scuttlebutt, you know, a couple of cops are calling up Lynn and, you know, kind of more or less saying, hey man, we're we're, we're we're afraid that somebody is going to find out what we're doing, meaning the, the true blue, as they call it, the cop that isn't there. So we're going to have to stop using the police car because it's starting to draw too much attention in front of the warehouse. And somebody is going to start asking, why is there a cop car in front of this warehouse all the time? So they tell him that, and he comes and tells me. I go, yeah, you're right. That makes sense. You have to bring your car. Y'all got to sit in your own cars. So Why weren't they doing that in the first place? Well, because they were cheap. They didn't want to run their own gas. They could run a car all night long, go back and fill up in, in the uh, motorcade gas thing, come back out, and just do it again. And as we start getting more and more cops, we did that operation probably another month, month and a half. And then a new complaint comes in that their cars are overheated. And they were talking about July, New Orleans, unbelievably hot and humid. And you imagine just sitting in your car eight hours. They, they tried to, to run, you know, one guy's car for four hours, another guy's car for four hours. They tried turning off the vehicle and rolling the windows, but nothing was working. They start complaining, and they started saying, you know, we, we need to do something else. Great for us, because now they want to rent a van and use the van to sit in guard the warehouse. Great idea. Trojan horse. Why? Because now, if the FBI can lease the van, they can take that van and put in all the lifting devices they possibly would need and cameras to record all the things that are going on, document what is happening in front of the warehouse. So, Lynn, we, we already know it because we already hear, heard the conversations in you know, all the complaints. So, I already know it. So, we meet again and we're in a big old fancy restaurant. The funny part is, we can hear Sammy calls Lynn. On both the phones that we got recorded on, as they're both driving to meet me, and and they're saying, "What are we gonna say to Jay?" You can hear the conversation. Well, we just tell him, man. You know, he said, "No, nah, if you don't like it, we'll be says we gonna pay for it." So I got all this information. He's like, "Well, I ain't sure. we ain't paying for that. He gonna pay for it. He got all the money." So he kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The phone clicks off. Remember the guy Joey about the DEA test. Larry Smith calls up the Andy girl. Under no circumstances, this guy hit that van. You make sure you are the one releasing the van. You got it? Uh, 
He's like, God, man, I got it. I'm good. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I'm good. They get to the restaurant. Now they meet me, and they're pitching. I have to act like I don't like it, even though it's a great. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking inside. Woohoo! Right, right, right. right but you, you can't let them know that. So I start saying, to them, okay, we, we can do that. We can do that. So when are y'all going to go get it? So it goes, what do you mean, what? what? My shipment's going to come in probably next week. Just have it out there at the time I need you to be there, and I'm good. Whoa, wait a minute, Jay. Man, we thought you was going to pay for this. And I'm giving them a hard time. Let me get this straight. You want me to pay you guys to watch and also pay for the band that you guys are sitting in, that you guys are complaining about the cars that you're sitting in, that I'm paying for your gas by giving you all this money. So I never committed to it. Of course, that's what KJ thought I'd blown it. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe you didn't tell him yes. I know what I'm doing. So we listened to the conversation of the of the phone. And Sammy and Lynn are just going back and forth. Man, what are we going to do? If we don't get this boy to pay, what are we going to do? Sammy said, I don't give a damn what Larry Smith is. We are not paying for this man. He said, we'll just lie to him. We'll lie to all of them, Lynn. But we're not paying. So we hear all that. Which, again, means I'm winning. So I call him up, and I say, all right, I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to get the van. So Larry tells him, make sure you go with him, and you pick out the van. If you want him to pay for it, watch him pay for it right then there, then you're good. So I said, all right. He doesn't care. So we go get the van, take it away for four or five, however long it takes for us to wire it up with all the devices that we need to have in there. We replace the van with another van, bring it back on the lot, sit over to the side. Go inside like we're going to make the transaction. Then look at two or three bands. Tom, I think that band's the best one. He doesn't care. He said, yeah, okay, that would sound good, too. I thought I'd be going in, you know, drop the paperwork. Man, we'll go inside. We <laughs> come back out and get in the van and drive it. So let me get this right. You've already come in and purchased the van, taken it off the lot, fixed it up, bring it back to the lot, he thinks it. he thinks it's on the lot because it's still available for sale. You go inside yep. pretending that you're now doing the sale and come out with the keys for a van that you already bought. Right. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and off we go. But, you know, our monitors hear him on the phone saying to Larry and everybody else, yeah, I just picked out this van. I, he must say it four or five times a minute. I picked it out myself. Don't worry about it. I picked it out my, you know, he's saying over, 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 over again to everybody. And the details don't start in two days. Don't worry about it. We're good. Just flat out lying to him that he's the one who picked the van out and that uh, we are going to be good. I went in. I watched him purchase it. I saw him side agreement. I saw him do everything. I saw him do everything. And I picked it out. I told him which one on the lot I want. So now we're good. He didn't walk in. Go inside. He didn't go inside. We know he's now, so he's selling me to the other individual, lying about what he allowed me to do, you know, which is what they didn't want me to do. So now we're, we have another opportunity to listen to any and all conversations of anybody that's sitting outside on their shift as they guard your ship to cocaine. And those conversations are really good. Each individual is continually talking about how much do you think is in the warehouse, how much is it worth? We start hearing some 
concerning things about ripping me off, killing me, things like that. So, um, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't just sugarcoat that. So you're hearing them talk about possibly killing you and just taking the whole warehouse shipment. Yeah, as we start to listen to the different conversations, I'm, I'm supposed to go on to this costume party that Lynn and some other people, other dirty cops, invited me to. I had owed Lynn. I was supposed to go pay him earlier that night and then from there go on to the Halloween party. At that time, you know, unfortunately in the FBI, a lot of your conversations are being transcribed by someone, by some other monitors. So they had just gotten to the point that two guys had a lengthy conversation about how they wanted to take other cops, not any of the cops that were used on the detail, have them catch me and Skaboo either with or without the drug, attempt to arrest us, and when we resisted arrest, kill us and then plant weapons on our, our bodies to say that it's a shootout with them. They were saying this for two reasons. One, they were afraid that as this thing kept going month after month, that they were, someone was going to find out. Some true blue is what the conversation they always had was going to find out and they're all going to go to jail. So the only way there's going to be no witnesses is if we just shut this down, kill all witnesses, and then the rest of us can go scot free, whatever money we made so far. So they kept having these conversations. They just happened to find out about this one particular one just before I was heading to this Halloween party. So I was scheduled to pay Lynn some money. We had kind of screwed up one of the payments. Somehow, whatever money I was supposed to pay for whoever else was on, when we counted the money up to Flynn's den, I was off, so I had to come back again. As I was meeting him, I get a call on my phone to get out. To get out, get out, man. So I pay him the money, and I get out. My contact agent and uh, a monitor, we, we get this hotel, they, they bring the tape, and he plays it for me. You can hear They're going to take me out, say, we need to whack him, we need to get rid of his ass, we need to do this quick. All we got to do is catch him alone. So they felt, ah, Juan, if you go to a party, man, it, it, they could be talking about that time. Uh, we might want to beg off the party. I ended up not going to the party that night. I had a few choice words with a couple of the people that should have been more up on this monitoring of this. Cause it, was a, it was a conversation from like three or four days ago. Wow. Then all of a sudden it got lax with our monitor. I don't know what happened. So, yeah, it would be a shame that, you know, the information comes in. And, you know, something terrible happens, and two or three days later, oh. We would have transcribed it. Let me just be clear about something. This conversation that you're overhearing, these guys are making these plans without Sammy or Lynn being aware of it. Absolutely. In, In that conversation also is explicitly what we can't let Lynn find out. It, it, it's yes. It, we can't let Lynn. They feared him. We can't let Lynn find out if we do this. If we're in agreement to doing this, and who we got, we we cannot let him find out. Because he, he, like I said, he, he was a pretty nasty guy. And uh, as I tell you another story about him, they uh, it was proven how nasty he was. So obviously, I'm a little upset. We had to. 
devise a plan and I had got called back to Miami. Why do we rethink our ways of doing uh, what we're doing? Uh, do you feel at that point you have enough to, to take it down? Um, unfortunately, we had found out through conversations that were, there were several other cops uh, that somebody knew was still referring. So that, that was the big thing. And then, of course, it was mine to make. You know, as far as one, you think it's becoming too dangerous or starting to get to that point. I, I, I thought with some smart movement, you know, we could, we could control. After about a week off of everybody cooling, cooling heads, I was a little heated. I'm not going to lie in the beginning, but it opened their eyes to, you know, cause like you said, it had been a horrible experience to have something happen and you idiots all of a sudden catch up to the transcription and, and find out, oh man, two days ago they said they were going to kill it. Yeah, and, and guess what? They did. Yeah. Right. So they had, they increased the agent compliment. They increased the, the compliment of people working on it. It was unbelievable what they did at that point. So now you got all types of miners, all types of surveillances. They recruited two other squad teams. So it, it made me think that at least now, after some soul searching, some, like I said, some choice words, that they uh, realized the importance of maybe being up to speed all the time. Right. I just want to be clear when we say monitors, monitors are the people who are sitting on the wire real time or yeah. at least immediately after and making those transcriptions, listening to what is going on and recording yeah. it and documenting it. Yes. And because a lot of times something is not said so overtly. Like, if they're just saying, we need to take him out. If you were just listening, not paying attention, you might not determine what that meaning is. Now, when you listen to it again, you go, wait, 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 take him out. They ain't trying to take him to McDonald's. They ain't trying to take him out. Whack him. You know, so now let's, 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 let's wrap our heads around because initially every monitor was was listening for the safety and security of me, but they were really listening to all the different verbiage as it related to illegal activity. So I think they kind of lost part of what was written, you know, which is what everyone has to uh, uh, sign off on to be a minor, that also when there could be any threat as it pertains to the UCA. So just that reinforcement and that, and that uh, refocus, or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> was needed. And uh, we moved on. We moved on. So I come back. We meet again now. Everybody's explaining, you know, how we're going to do it differently. What do I think we need to do differently? And it's fine. Because at that point, unfortunately, it continued. But at that point, we didn't have that many death threats at that point. We got a lot more afterwards. But at that point, we thought, okay, you know, those two guys, we'll keep an eye on those two guys. Remember, we have the one guy who works for the partner. So he did his due diligence. All right, let me check who we could possibly be you know, getting to set this up and whatever everyone wants to patrol. So a lot of other things were, were, were being worked on the back end of it. A couple more taps of phones and things like that that had to be done. But anyway, some other things started happening to, to, to combat some of the problems. Um, so now we're, we're, we're back up to speed. Um, we're moving forward again. Um, they realized I had to run out to do some business. They thought I did. The bad cops did. So skaboo was left kind of being around. Another bad thing happened, something that Larry Smith planted in Lynn Davis's mind. 
this works out to what, I don't want to say I'm the greatest in the world. This works out to certain ways I do things. So, Larry tells Lynn, that what if the DEA or somebody is on this and we don't know? He says, I work for the DEA. I'm on this task force and I've been checking. But just to check on a, a, a guy named JJ, man, that's impossible. We need to know his real name. So, what they do, they snatch up Skaboo, snatch him up again, take him back to the bad lands again, again with the gun. They didn't make him open his mouth because they need him to talk. They put it to his head, and they tell him he better tell them my real name. Now, he never knew my real name. He said, even when we were in the military, he went by this same name. It's so long ago, man. I, I don't remember what was on the uniform because I didn't care. Because the dude always called himself JJ. I'm telling you, and the reason he could not answer, because he really never knew. Now, the problem with that is a lot of mistakes are made by UCAs and people when that case agent, that U.S. attorney, that whoever calls you by your real name. Yeah, Juan, we need you. Yeah, Juan, yeah, Juan. I, in every case I've ever done in my entire life, I've always told everybody, the only way you'll address me is if you ever, ever call me my real name. He said, but that was agreement they had to sign off. And that's in every case I've ever done. But I take it in other, in other undercover scenarios, you've used another undercover name, or have you always used JJ? Always used JJ. Okay. <laughs> it's not hard to forget. <laughs> always used JJ. And to this day, you have agents that are in the undercover world with that go to the school that that's all they ever called. Hey, Jay, you doing something? Okay. It's just weird how that has taken a life of its own. Right, because in, in real life, you you do not go by the nickname JJ. The only reason I use that name, to be perfectly honest with you, that is the nickname of my firstborn. And the FBI always said that you have to use name it that you will recognize at any time in a crowded room, across the hallway, down the street, and somebody yells that name, they would turn my head. If someone says, hey, JJ, I would turn, and I would look. I would say, oh, JJ. So it's a recognizable name, something that, 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 that was the world we lived in. That, so if you pick a, a, a John, a Bill, a Steve, a lot, whatever you pick, you better make sure that that name is something that you will always acknowledge. Right. Oh. So, yeah, I know a lot of undercover agents use their real first name, and they yeah. may change the last name, but their yeah. real first name, you know, if it's Bob or John, they use, they yeah. they still use that. And, again, yeah. that way if somebody says, hey, John, or hey, Bob, they're going to turn because that yeah. really is their name. My my license, my passports, my whatever I had for the undercover ID was Johnny Johnson, but I never used it. I never used it. I never used it. But as far as I, I identification, you know, you're having a false ID, you're having a false whatever, it, that was written on the document. I never used it. Never. Right, because if somebody called out, hey, Johnny, you're not yeah. going to turn. I'm that's not going to be a name that's going to make you turn. But, J.J., since it was your son's yeah. name, you were going to turn. <laughs> I get it. So, you know, it was just something that I knew. A lot of guys made that mistake. 
telling people their names, using their names, doing whatever. I didn't. I, I, I just, it, it just worked for me. You know, it, it never identified anything. And thank God in this particular case, as this one guy who worked for the DEA said, that we need to figure out what if they're watching this guy and now they're watching us. So if you can get me a name, I can run it to the database or say, pulls the boo in, he's on his knees, snotting and crying, begging him. The only thing I know about this guy is JJ. I swear on my mother. He was, he was, I'm telling you, he was begging. Then they threatened me and told him that if I find out that they threatened me, they're all hell's going to break this for So, obviously, I now had to act that I never knew. I mean, he told me, obviously. Um, but, you know, it was to our benefit that they felt that they had convinced him not to tell hmm. But we knew that Harry was a force to be reckoned with. But we realized he was going to be a problem, you know, because he had a different perspective. Right. For an agency that was similar to ours, you know, that had the capabilities ours had. You know, he was well-versed. So, you know, we, 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 we knew that. Then it, it went a step further. As the case continued on, and Larry starts getting in the van. Imagine two guys in the van for eight damn hours and maybe three minutes of conversation the whole entire eight hours. Wow. Larry was determined that he wasn't going to say anything about and if you tried to say something to him, he would shut you up. Like, you know, a lot of our conversations would be, man, how much drugs you think's in there, bro? Man, how much money? You know, they would just talk. Okay, they, they, they passed the time. And Larry would tell you, I don't want you to say shit to me. When we're in this man, unless it's about your mama, he said, I really don't want to hear about your mama. He said, I don't want to hear nothing about your wife. Your girl, I don't want to hear nothing. I don't do nothing but do my time. You sit here. His was the weirdest tourist that we had, the weirds, because he, he just told me. The weird part was that, you know, it amazed us that he would still do it. You know what I mean? That, 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 yeah, it, he was so yeah. cautious, so concerned, so suspicious. Why did he still participate? It, it was the weirdest thing that just baffled us. So, like he knew it. He knew yeah, it. Like, like, <laughs> but he did it anyway. But he just did it anyway. Yeah, so that's, we, that's what you call greed. Yeah, it, it's just a strange dynamic to sit there and say, okay, you always had this feeling, but you're dumb behind did it. Like, are you kidding me? Like, So it goes on now. We're moving pretty good. Uh, we're identifying more and more people. We're cops now, maybe 20, I think. We're doing pretty good. Then we get a bad break one night, two guys, Adam Dees and Brinky Brown, on the van, hanging out, doing their shit. Both of them were the, were the original nine. One of those two was the guy who had the prostitutes out on the street. Okay. So one night, these idiots decide that to pass their eight hours, they're going to get two prostitutes to come to Van Allen and do what they do. But I thought they were supposed to be watching the warehouse. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and we have cameras and everything else in the van. So, um, 
away, hidden away in my undercover closet. And I think they're on the midnight day shift or something. I get a call from the case agent. He's like, JJ, we got a problem. What's the problem? He said, uh, two guys in the van, Adam Dean and Brinky Brown, in there with these two prostitutes, man. Man, what are we going to do, man? We need to get a hold of Lynn, have him straighten this out. At first, I laughed when I first thought, ah, you know, it is what it is, man. You know, they, they dirty. What else? expect <laughs> to be the honest cop, you know. But as a businessman on the side of the drug dealer, I have to, you know, say that, okay, let me think a way that I found out and uh, call you back. So I devised the plan that I had driven by the warehouse, check on my operation, and saw... Had you done that before? Had you really driven by before? Once or twice, not much, not much, just once or twice. But I did, they never knew. They never knew. They never knew I did. Because I'd tell them different things that, you know, yeah, I'd see... They, a lot of times would park their cars, like, too close to the van, and I'd say, if you don't want your van car associated with what you're doing... You might want to pull it around the corner, you know, something like that. I would, you know, you might want to pull your car around the corner and walk behind over to the van. If you're trying not to be identified, you know, and so different little things. They always guys watch. That particular night, I uh, said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I called Lynn up, cussed him out, I'm yelling, I'm screaming like I'm really upset. I'm going off for a while. He's trying to put me on like a speakerphone. He keeps dropping the phone. <laughs> I don't think he knows how to work the function. He's dropping. <laughs> he's trying to get dressed is what he's trying to do. And you can hear it. He's rushing around. He's saying, JJ, I'm on my way. I'm on my way, Jay. I'm on my way, man. I'm on my way. I'm a handless, bro. I'm a handless, bro. So he hangs up with me. We next hear on the, on the tap cell phone of him calling in Brinky Brown. And he's yelling. And you could hear the wind blowing through the car window that he has down. And he's asking, what's going on? And there's and he's saying what? What you talking about, Lynn? What you know? They got this southern girl. What? What man? What you talking about, man? So then he says, "I, I." Now the monitors that could see the camera saw that uh, uh, Brinky was in the van, and Adam had gotten to walk back to a car they parked near the van, and the other girl was in the car with him. So Lynn is asking. Brinky to hand the phone to Adam. <laughs> let me let me let me talk to him. Brinky tells uh, Lynn that Adam went to the bathroom. <laughs> He's not in the van right now. Finally, Brinky says, "Where you at, Lynn? Where you at, man? What you know?" Because you hear the I, we can hear the cars, you know, rushing. He hangs up, and he now is thinking Lynn is on his way. So. The tape shows later, like, I mean, high heels, wig, stuff that's being thrown out the van, kicking the woman out. He's running back to the car with just his pants, you know, up, no shirt, banging on the window of the car, telling Adam, get these girls out of here, Lynn's on his way, <laughs> we got to get gone. They scoop up all the clothes, pocketbook, and they throw it in the other car. As you can see, them, you can't see everything. And I'm scrambling to try to get dressed. We have a pole camera, too, so we're trying to view that a little bit. So we're, he's trying to get dressed, and he's trying to get stuff together so he can drive away. He gets dressed just in time and gets two girls to drive away. 
Brinky goes back and sits in the vein. Lynn pulls up. He is on fire. I mean, he is on fire. He gets out. You can hear him through the window because the microphone's inside the van. Screaming and knocking on the window. Run out the window, Adam. I mean, Brinky, run out the window. Run out the window, I said. And he's like, Lynn, you need to calm down, man. You just need to calm down. He said, no, roll down, roll down the window, Brinky. I'm telling you, roll down the window right now. They're going back and forth, back and forth. Finally, Adam's dumb behind, rolls down the window. Then reaches through that window and starts pummeling. He gets the, he reaches in and grabs the lock to the door, opens the door up. I mean, I mean, he's beating the hell out of him. Just beating the hell out of him. Drags him out of the car. As he drags him out of the van, just stomps him a couple times. The car, here comes Adam, pulls up in the car. <laughs> yeah, he didn't want to get out and get, no, and get involved in that. Yeah. He didn't get that. He gets down. Then goes back. Yeah, you need to roll that window. He said, I ain't rolling down the window, Lynn. No, Lynn, you need to calm down. All right, I'm calm. I'm calm. Then walks back, he has a flashlight. Walks back, he swings the brinky and misses. Adam gets out. Lynn, Lynn, we need to calm down. Then catches him on his shoulder. Pow! With the police flashlight. Tears his Oh, he falls down. Then he punches him. Bam, bam, bam. Beats them both up. He then goes back to the car. All fire. You ain't messed up the hustle. You're not messing this up. This man has told me this is serious. You can't be messing with this man. These yellow screens and whatever. Can't mess. He gets back in the car, calls me. Jay, handle it. It's all good. It ain't gonna do that again. I'm gonna dock him some pay. Just, just don't pay him this much. Pay him that, whatever. I said, yeah, we'll work that out. Tomorrow, we'll work all that out. So, then goes home. Now the monitors are now listening. And what do you think is going across the conversation? There's two guys sitting in a van, licking and patching up their wounds, because both of them are bleeding from head to toe, and then pummeled and kicked them and whatever. Now they're pissed. So, as this evolves into another detail, now conversations are starting to develop between more than one cop about stopping this operation. They finally get like four or five of them together and they're talking, you know, either while they're in the van uh, on the phone or on the other two phones that we have based on threats. And Brinky and Adam are chiming in that they'll volunteer to do it. If we're ever going to kill them, uh, you know, I need to get even. Lynn kicked my ass. I, I do. I, I'll, I'll be the one that Okay, so now you've got somebody actually. Right. Okay. So now this we're. Is, this is just not words. These are not just words. They're yeah. idle threats. This is getting to the point now. We, we really have to start changing details, changing times, telling them if we're removing the drugs on this day, no, we're not going to move them to this day. If they're coming on this day, no, they're coming. To, so we're, we're just scrambling. I'm just doing all the types of things. We had initially, and I have to back up a minute, uh, at one point, the, uh, there's a lot of different rules and regulations that are continuing with wiretapping and things like that. So sometimes there are gaps where approvals have to be re-upped. So certain operations, like, like our operation lasted 13 months, but after six months, there had to be documents sent back to headquarters 
to allow to continue. So a lot of things, you can't act on that until those reviews are made and those approvals are made. So it was a good time to kind of take a step back, get some other approvals going on because we're starting to expand some of the other, you know, listening devices and things like that. So a lot of things are happening that we needed to sure up. So with that, we devised an idea that we're going to take Lynn and Sammy on a pleasure trip. And we're going to tell them that they can go wherever they want, pick a city. We're going to take a few days just to chill out and reward you guys with doing a good job for the amount of time you've been working for me. And we need to just show that I appreciate what you're doing. That gave us time to really regroup and rethink how we're going to continue and, you know, things like that. So we're thinking these guys are going to pick something exotic, the Bahamas or something like that. We're trying to figure out how we're going to be allowed to do all this. So we're really trying to figure it all out. What do these guys do? They picked Atlanta, Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) That's the exotic location. (laughs) Nothing wrong with this. I'm just saying that if you had, even Miami, I thought, or L.A., I thought was going to come up before uh, that came up. But anyway. Anyway, so we, they take a lap. Nothing but pleasure. Hang out, blow money, just a good long weekend, three, four day weekend. We'll just go hang out. So we're set up what we're going to do. Lynn starts him and home with him going. Wait, wait, what do you mean? What, what? What are you talking about? So we can't figure out why he's him and home. We don't know if there's something that has to do with the death threats. We, we, we're really you know, confused at this point. Like, why is he not wanting to go with Jay? Like, what's going on? Sammy, on the other hand, happy as a lark. He's ready. Uh, to, yep, you know, of course. Yeah, let's go, let's go, let's go. So we finally uh, can't figure it out. And we're, we're getting to the time frame that we need to get back. So I, I got to get this part of what we decided to do moving. Um, and again, you know, uh, we want to kind of reinforce some things with them, throw out a few tidbit things about this rental guys and, you know, what you need to show up. Just, just some things that might help us, you know, combat the threats a little bit and, and reinforce his scare in these guys and whatever else. Just, just some different ways we thought we'd kind of combat this problem. So, but we need, we need Lynn. We need Lynn. Can't use Sammy. Sammy's not good at that. So I take Sammy to dinner by himself. After I gave him a few drinks anyway. A big old steak. Uh, he tells me that Lynn, he said, please don't tell me, is deathly afraid of flying. <laughs> I said, get the hell. He said, Jay, Jay, I'm telling you, he is deathly afraid of flying. So now we're trying to figure this out. Like, how the heck did we get this guy? With him and all, we're losing time as far as operationally. So we don't have a lot of time to drive to Atlanta and all that stupid stuff because Lynn even said that. We don't have time. It's going to take us too long to get there. Too long to get... No, we're not doing it. So I have another dinner meeting with both of them and I'm trying to get him to admit it to me. Sammy goes, look, man, Jay's going to push the first click. Come on, man. He finally says, okay, all right, I'll go. Get on the plane. I ain't going to like it. And we kept alluding to the fact that I have a higher person that I deal with. Uh, okay. Backs me. So we found a way of trying to get around it. And, and I, I threw out the mob a couple of times, told them that I'm their man. I work for the mob, and uh, I'm their front runner. 
I'm the guy out front. I'm trying to explain to them, typically they don't like to deal with the drug part, so I'm that guy. But, you know, obviously they're, they're my backing, they're whatever, and they we, we got schedules to keep, so I don't have a lot of time there. So what do you want to do? So he goes, okay. So he goes, okay. So I'm going to fly in. I, I told him I had to go to Miami. So me and Kabo, we're going to go to Miami and then fly from Miami to Atlanta. We're going to meet them in Atlanta. Of course, we're trying to set up everything you can, obviously, in Atlanta to make sure everything is right before they get there, the hotels, the different things we're trying to do, get help from the Atlanta FBI division. You know, so there's some things we got to do um, to, to, to keep this thing going. So we do all that. We get all the, the Atlanta stagehand. We get everybody that we needed to get involved with, involved um, to set up this trip. Uh, we get all... Uh, the different strip clubs and the nightclub and all that identified for me. And so we're, we're good. We, we fly in and we're there a couple of days. They thought we just got in before then. Get to the airport. We have to leave again to fly back in again to fly into the airport. So we go back out so we can fly and be inside the airport, uh, when Lynn arrives. This is the part of the story that, that even baffles me. So we're sitting at the gate, waiting for Lynn, Lynn and Sammy to arrive, so we can walk to baggage claim. As I'm sitting at the gate, at their gate, not our gate, you know, because they're supposed to be coming in. I look over to my right, and I see this older gentleman that just keeps staring at me. It's me and Skaboo. Oh, my God. This can't be. This guy is the chief of police of the town I grew up in. No. Because <laughs> he's just looking at me. I got, you know, a beard, earrings, you know, I've let my hair grow. You know, I'm you know, the greatest young athlete or whatever else he knows it was back in the whatever era of time when I was a young kid. And he's looking at me. Tim and his wife. He starts to get up. As he gets up, I go, oh, my God, he's getting to come over to me. And first of all, he's going to tell him my real name because he's going to call me by my real yes. name. Yes. He knows my real name. And I can look up at the time and see that Lynn's flight is a just lane. Mm. Holy jeez. Oh, my God. So now everything is starting to unfold quickly. Kaboo has no idea. He has no idea. I can't really tell him because that's not a sign he needs to know. So I get up. I start walking. The other way. He called by my name. Swipe. What? What? I see walking like, I don't even know. Who was like, yo, man, what's going on? I said, nothing, man. Just walk. Just walk. Just walk. He has no idea the man's calling me because he, you know, he's just some, some black guys yelling at, you know, to some other guy. Why? Why? He don't know. He don't know. So he's ignoring some guy, some older man yelling somebody's name. What does that mean? So he's yelling my name. He says like three times. I just keep walking away. I see his wife grab his arm, turn, I get to almost to the end of the end of this one little area and I'm giving her right, I can glance back in between looking through this restaurant area that is right there on that corner. I look through there and I see his wife scoop up his arm and start pulling. Said, you know, come on, come on, come on. Thank God he his flight he was he was supposed to board. He was so he was boarding his flight. So, mm. so his wife pulled him away. I stand like just beyond the restaurant, I'm looking around the corner like this in between the restaurant. The restaurant's like I'm I can see the, the wife pulling away, 
and I'm trying to find on the monitor the gate that says boarding. So I hesitate because, you know, just because it says boarding doesn't mean you have to board. <laughs> you know, you can wait till last minute. You know, so I wait a little while, wait a little while, wait a little while. I also see that Lynn's plane has landed, you know. So now, and I told my meeting, you know, right at the gate because our flight, you know, got in before his. Um, so now I'm talking and then Skaboo is, because he has no idea what's going on, he's deadly saying, hey, man, we got to get back. The plane's landed. I gingerly walked back to the gate, and I could see there's nobody in the area, the waiting area that he was sitting in at all. The door shutting, so, which means they boarded everyone. They're good. So Did I'm you like, ever see him later and let him know what the deal the was? part was he, he comes back. I forgot where he was going at on vacation because that was just a layover wherever they were going from New Jersey to wherever they were going next. He comes back, and he, he knew my mother and father, my mother in particular very well, so he knew her. So he gets a hold of my uncle, who gets a hold of my mother, and then so he calls my mom and says, I saw your, your son in, in the Atlanta airport. The funniest thing on it was he, uh, he, uh, he, he refused to, to say hello. He actually looked like he was trying to avoid me. My mom, because she has no idea what I'm doing either, you know, says, uh, well, I find that hard to believe. And then she says to him, because she did not work for the FBI, she said, you do realize who he works for, right? And then he went, oh, okay. He explained to him, not specifically, just that I was working and I couldn't at that time uh, jeopardize what I was doing. I never explained the whole deal. I just wasn't able to explain that to him. Yeah, that's, that's one thing you know as an FBI agent. If you see somebody out where you normally wouldn't see them, you know, you got to give each other that look first to make sure. Yeah. Let them know. Yep. Don't, I, I actually had a similar situation where I was in an airport. I was with my family, and I saw an agent that I knew. But I could tell by the way he looked at me. Do not come over. Do not say anything. Does Lira learn? Yep. I mean, the fun, I mean, the amazing part, like I said, was that it was that close. That their gate was one gate, like, you know, you had the dual gate thing, and they had one more gate over that way. And so they were that close. At that close, they were to me, like, not in a little area that two, so, men arrives, and, uh, here we go. We, we, we take off, um, to baggage claim. We go to baggage claim, and, uh, you know, we're grabbing our bags and whatever we're doing, and, uh, he has a, you know, as a bigger bag than I thought he should have, because we're not, we're there for like three days. We're not, you know, going to be there that long. You know, I'm like, damn, man, did you just pack the damn house in there? So we're joking around, joking around. We get, get the, uh, uh, limo just going to take us to the, uh, hotel. We get the limo and he's got his bag with him. I said, man, put that in the back, man. I mean, it's a big limo, but put that in the back. He goes, no, I'm good. He opens the bag up and pulls out his gun. I go, what the hell are you doing? He said, I don't go nowhere without him. He said, you allowed to put this in your luggage, you know? He said, so I put it in my luggage, declared it, put it in my luggage. But I don't go nowhere without him. He said, well, some of the places we're going to go to might not allow you to have your gun in. He said, I'll take care of that. 
but I'll go nowhere with that. Caught me off guard because I definitely expected not to see a gun on him. Not that the FBI hadn't given me one, but I'm just saying, um, didn't expect that. So, get to the hotel, shorten this up. We're going to go on a good, good three day of just showing him the, the city as much as I could show it to him. Strip clubs, nightclubs, whatever, all the famous there all the big-time players went to. We end up in a nightclub where it looks like it's the drug dealer's ball. Every knucklehead in there looks like some, you know, with the chains and the hair and whatever else is in there. <laughs> you know? So he realizes that he is the monk, which he thinks is my people. That's how coincidentally this happened. So he swears. He calls back to his girlfriend on the tape, you know, the phone that we have. And he's telling her that, yeah, I'm amongst Jay's people, all his people, folks that do dope like him. We go from there. We have a great time. You know, five-star, super-duper restaurants for us. So we're hitting every top-shelf area in the land you possibly could hit. It's a great time. For all the monitors are listening to is Lynn not only calling back to his girlfriend, but all the other uh, cops that were involved uh, telling them, how big of a baller I am. Wow. To the point that they showed up the first night and I said we're going to go out on the town. They had some of the most, trying to find a nice word, some of the most outdated outfits you could <laughs> possibly imagine. Buy it down to Lord and Taylor's and just buy them some stuff. And you can't be seen with me with that mess on. We go down to the little fancy high flute mall in Atlanta. So all the high-end stores are all the different me and the Marcuses and things like that. And we just go in there just I'm grabbing shirts, pants. Yeah, put that on. Yeah. So now the phone call has happened again. Man, Jay bought me a shirt for $150. Good time in Atlanta. Everything goes pretty good. He did identify himself as a police officer to several nightclub people, and they let him in with the gun. The one night in the baller's night, he didn't. But in two other instances, he did. And they let him in the gun. That time, he, he locked it in the trunk of the limousine, so a little bit of a concern. But, you know, we got over that. Everything worked out well. We come back. Everything's in place now. We have everything set up again. We're ready to move forward. The FBI feels that maybe we need to bring in a bodyguard just to show that there's somebody that you'll never know is around. So we go get this agent, Big Mo. I tell them that we need to go to... Biloxi, Mississippi, I have some business I got to attend to. I want you guys to ride along. You can gamble, do what you want. So I give them some money, and they gamble, and Big Mo meets me in the casino. They don't know who he is. I said, yeah, this is he's here to uh, oversee our next operation to make sure it runs smoothly because the people, the people that back back home are want to make sure that I'm handling my business. Everybody has to have somebody to be. Answer to. So that concern, it generates some more conversation. Mo does some different things. He doesn't talk to him. He doesn't say anything to him. When we set up the next operation, he's sitting at another location away. He makes sure they see him pull up in the SUV release for rented for him. And he pulls away. He watches from afar. You know, he watches. He drives by and looks at the guys sitting at night and the different shifts. So everybody sees. Everybody sees. That generates some more conversations, a 
about the operation, about me. Unfortunately, it also generates some more death threats. Don't worry about this guy. We can whack him, too. We can just get him pulled over because I know he got a gun on him. We feel, as that's going on, that we might want to enhance our role one more time and maybe put the fear into them as far as if they do decide to eliminate me, we want to make sure that they might think that somebody will come after Doing what we can, but the death threats just keep mounting. And sometimes it's good, this could be idle chatter. You're sitting in a van all day, you know, eight hours. A couple of them are just jealous that Lynn's been taking on these things and they ain't getting anything and Lynn thinks he's greatest, but, you know, we need to just stop all this. Other ones are just fearful that, you know, someone was asking somebody that we couldn't bring on the, 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 the group that we're using. Hey, I heard you guys got detail going on. Anyway, I can get involved. So a lot of it just, we need to end this, but we need to end this our way. So we decided to go down to Miami just for a day and a half. Obviously, the FBI has a lot of things we can use in Miami. We decided to use a, a yacht. We have staged on the yacht, undercover agents to look like Italian mobsters. I bring Sammy and Lynn on the yacht, keep them at a distance. I go over, kiss the ring, do what I got. I mean, that's an expression. Right, right. Stop. What I do, sit down, point back at Lynn and Sammy and tell them they're two guys that help me out in New Orleans. They're solid guys, stand-up guys, all the little conversations mobsters say. They acknowledge me and say, they appreciate what I'm doing. Let's just make sure it's it's an operation that is successful. Uh, we'll be watching. We go out that night in Miami, have a good time, out and about. Boom, we're out the next day. Conversations now are generated to the point that this guy is back by some big-time monster. I'm telling you, I saw it. I saw the boat. saw everything. Now, their expression is they hit the jackpot. In other words, we, we, we're in the money. We're good to go. We're, we're, making, we're making money for the rest of our lives. We're all good. Now, the conversations from the guys who are want to do the rip-offs are twofold. A lot of them are backing off, but two or three of them are still worrying about their real job and that we need to end this. And if we do it right, even the mob won't be able to say that we set this up. If a car stop is done and a shootout ensues, and we're not linked to the officers who pulled the car over, we should be good. And it's not about as much as ripping them off as about ending it our way and not getting anything tied back to us. Once the operation stops, we just go back to doing what we're doing. There's, there's that component of, of what could possibly happen. But, like I said, a lot of other guys got afraid. And, of course, there's the guys who are afraid of Lynn, too. So it, it really was it helped out a lot. It helped out a lot. But, of course, a death threat is not going to completely go away. That's just the way life is. So okay, so i got to ask you, how long are these death threats? You know, is this like happening in a few weeks or a few months? I mean, how long are you operating? Several months. Months. You know, they're, they're, they're happening. You know, we're identifying the different people that are on those shifts. You know, they're having a lot of conversations. So we're identifying those areas. Let me ask you another question. Do you have any information about these police officers being involved in murder, that they've done this before? They've had other drug dealers maybe in the city killed or, or have you no, know taken no. out informants or anything like that? None. None. Okay. 
We have none that we could put our finger on that would say anything like that until this happened. <laughs> okay. We had none. And, and, you, and you would assume that if they had, that would have been part of the conversation. We'll do him like we did that guy. Yeah. Yeah, and what they were saying was more of a car stop, and the car stop went bad. And, you know, and if we can eliminate the the witness, meaning me, in a gun, sh- gun battle with the police, we'll plant the gun on him, and then there won't be any witnesses to the operation. Myself and Skaboo would be dead, and they could just walk away, and everything would be good. So, but we had no... Other intelligence, any of the place that said any of these guys are capable of shooting me, or anybody else that they associated themselves with, their cops are capable of shooting me, other than acting in accordance of their job. I mean, we had information that cops had been in shootouts, but you know we didn't know could they pull that off, and was somebody willing to do that to that extent? Up until this, so we're going pretty good, everything's fine. Then Sergeant Willie Davis in their Internal Affairs Unit at New Orleans, the one cop who had been trying to identify everything he could for us, and he's doing a real good job. He one day gets this letter in the mail from an anonymous person. In there is an obituary cut out of a newspaper of a woman by the name of Kim Groves. And in a handwritten note attached to the obituary is, this is what happens when you tell on your own. doesn't mean anything to him. Like I said, he just got it on the desk that he added to the PD. So he, he kind of blows off from it. And Willie was actually wearing two hats. He did his normal, because the rest of the police department didn't know Willie was working with. So he did his normal job, and then he went and worked with us on this operation. So a couple of days go by, and he goes back to the anonymous letter. He stares at it. So he reads it. And, you know, it's a nice thing about the woman and how she was tragically gunned down. And so he goes to homicide. He says, hey, I see the file on this. They get in the file. So he looks through it. Obviously, there's the photos of her body. So he just starts thinking, something's not right. Something's not right. The area it happened in. Just a lot of different things led him to think that what if one of these guys are involved? And that's all he had was a fear. So he starts reviewing transcripts of the different conversations. He comes across this transcript tape conversation with Lynn Davis with an unknown person, and the transcript said something to the effect that, hey, man, then talking to the guy, I need you to do me a signal 30. Obviously, to our monitors, he didn't identify who then was talking to. I had no idea what the hell that was all about. So it was actually not really considered pertinent information, but it was just that. So he continues on with that conversation. And in that same file of those conversations on that same night, he says, I'm going uptown now, and I'll let you know what I see. Again, no big deal. The other guy on the other end just says, okay. Okay, I got you. Hit me back. I think he ends up calling somebody else first or whatever, but then maybe two conversations after that. Another document transcript is him saying the woman has black faded jeans and a camel-colored top on, and he, in his own words, says, get that hoe. The guy on the other end of the conversation says, I'm on my way. Again, what the hell does that mean? Nothing. So he still continues down the conversation and finds a incoming call, maybe 
15 minutes after the last whatever you know, conversation was, you know, between that last conversation and then the next documented one, and the incoming call is that guy who they had identified calling Lynn, saying in the exact words, the bitch is Shabahu. Then with the phone still open, you hear Lynn like in a yell of, whoa, whoa, something to that nature. Like a happy yell? Like a happy yell. He then hangs up with that guy, calls Sammy Williams, and says, our problems are over. Sammy says, you're shitting me. He says, no, I told you I would take care of it, and I did. Again, in its own separate it doesn't mean anything. What, what does all that mean? And even if they, even if the monitor suspected what it, it meant, they didn't right. know who they were talking about. They did nothing. So, and it had nothing really related to our case as they are guided and directed to do. They couldn't identify who the guy was. So I have no idea who was this unknown caller. They don't know why he's calling and saying signal thirty. What the heck does that mean? You know, some jargon, some slang. But. Now, Sergeant Willie Davis says, uh-oh, I think I got a hit. He goes back to the homicide file, pulls out the homicide photos, and what does he find? When a woman shot dead on her steps with black faded jeans and camouflage top. Now, on the same day as those calls were made. Yes. So now, as a cop, he starts doubling down into it. Now he's got to take it to us because he's like, look, I'm not sure I got this, but I think I got this. Take it to us. Here they go. And I don't know where I am. I can't remember exactly how it all went down, but I, I was probably still operational somewhere. Um, we're setting up the next detail, whatever we're doing. They go and investigate it. They track down the conversation. They track down the individual. It's a low-level, street-level drug dealer by the name of Damon Causey. He's the guy who the phone belongs to. Damon Causey, Paul Jackson, and I forgot the other kid's name right now. It's three guys. Anyway, after a long, drawn-out process, they figure out, maybe it took them two or three days, they truly believe that Lynn has ordered a hit on some woman by the name of Kim Groves. And who's Kim Groves? Kim Groves was a correction officer for the city. She had filed a complaint against Lynn because Lynn and Sammy pistol whipped in front of her and her sister, her two nephews. Now, what they were able to determine was that one day in a police vehicle, Lynn and Sammy pull up to their house. Their two nephews are sitting on the step. Lynn and Sammy get out and without hesitation, didn't give a damn who was watching, starts beating the hell out of both boys. I mean, to the point like the 18 stitches in the forehead type beat. Kicks them. That's in front of everybody sitting there, including Kim Brooks. They're hot. She goes, oh, hell no. That ain't going down like that. She goes to the police department and files a complaint against both police officers. 
over a tape conversation that we were able to find out, we hear somebody from internal affairs, uh, yes, yeah, from internal affairs, who isn't a, 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 a bad guy, but a friend of Lynn called in and said, hey man, you got problems. Because he's had numerous complaints about his actions. He, he has a file as big as the day is long. So this police officer who happened to be a friend of his, nothing more than that, we, we, we investigated that, is saying, you might want to ask this woman, can she take this complaint away? Because this one is different, coupled with all the other ones, is different to get you fired or a long suspension. If I were you, I go apologize to that woman. With that, we now chase some more stuff down, and we figure out, not me, but the FBI, that now he has conversations with Sammy Williams, him just saying, hey, man, we got to talk about something. We got props. There's several of those. They don't do a lot over the phone, but they meet. Those two, those two meet, and then Lynn tells him the problem. This lady can grows. And he's saying, that's why on that conversation, he said, but I'm going to handle it. I'm going to hand. I got people. No, I, I got people. I'm going to hand. Is what he tells him. Wow. Um, unbeknownst to us, because we don't know anything about this. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay, so now, once we've gotten to the point that, oh my God, we got a guy that actually has put a hit out on somebody and killed them. Had them killed. Holy cow. This is a big deal. We all get on a plane to D.C. Everybody gets on that plane to D.C. And we got to go see Director Louis Free. We go in. We meet with the unit chief, the section chief. They take us up. And, man, we, we're sitting there. And then they bring me in because I'm the last guy to get there. Obviously, snuck in. But anyway, and we're all sitting. And he, Director Free, just tells us, the only time you got left on this case is to identify, because we didn't have all the place, of who's involved in this murder. And that's it. And this case gets shut down. Mm. Your job is to identify that, and that's it. He said, I don't care if there's a hundred more cops out there. That's it. We're done. We got a limited time. I think we have two months, month and a half, something like that, to do this. I know that you and the case agents don't need to be defendants. But this murder really has nothing to do with the undercover operation. It has no. to do with the number of complaints that he has accumulated over his career. Yes. So this would have happened whether he was involved with you or not. Yes. And in a sense, in a sense, the fact that you are operating this undercover is what allows you to find out about this information no. and to solve it. Yeah, they would have never. Because it, in itself, if, if we weren't around and say he took the, because what happened was her two nephews, like I said, were low-level drug dealers. Men had this standing rule in the Desiree Project that you have to come through him to sell drugs in the Desiree Project. Those two guys had decided to go around him. So his motive for pistol with both of them was that they didn't get his approval to sell those the little drugs they were selling. That's what it was all about. That's what it was all about. So, yes, to determine, and of course, as two drug dealers, they weren't going to go to the cops because it is what it is. They got beat. They had to leave alone. Now, when his aunt went to the cops, uh, 
which is something that she, you know, because she wasn't about any of that. She, uh, unfortunately, thought the end result was what Lynn felt he needed to do. I got to ask this question from the whole start of this. This note, this newspaper article, this obituary, and then the handwritten note was sent by someone who was aware of what had happened to internal affairs because yes. they didn't find it acceptable either. The shooting went down, as we found out later, once we investigated, once now we have a secondary case opened up by the Bureau, by the headquarters, to identify this murder, this murder for hire as a label, because he actually hired someone to murder somebody. Um, has that case opened up? They were able to determine that on the night of that incident, Kim Groves was sitting on her porch, her and her sister. A police car drives by first. That police car is Lynn and Sam. The conversation of him calling Demon Kazi and Paul Jackson and, and I forget the other kid's name, he calls them up. He tells them that she's on the, 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 her step and this is what she's wearing because there's two women sitting on the step. They go get a red Jeep. They get up to the location. They drive by themselves the first time slowly to look to see what two people sitting on the step. The sister, after that slow drive-by, decides this ain't a good, no, I'm getting up. This, this, come on, get that. And unfortunately, the other female decides that she's not moving, you know, so she sits on the step. They drive by again, park the car in front, he gets out, walks back, walks up to her, shoots her several times in the head, and then uh, runs back to the car and they take off. So it kills her right there. Execution. Yeah, he just executes. So then they drive down, disassemble a little bit of the weapon. They take the barrel, throw the barrel into the lake, punch train, reassemble the weapon, and then drive back. We find out that once we were able to identify all the players, they decided to execute all the search warrants. They actually found that weapon uh, in one of the individual's homes. I think it was DeMond Cosby's home. Uh, he had kept the weapon in his drawer. One of the guys became a cooperating witness, and he was able to tell us soup to nuts exactly what I just told you. The calls, the drive-by, the taking the barrel, all like that. He decided to cooperate, and he wouldn't go to jail or, or get the death penalty. So we cooperated because there was three individuals in the car, and uh, he was the one in the back. And uh, he told who the shooter was, who the driver was. He was in the back seat. He, he was there when the calls came in the whole nine yards. So he was able to put together for us after we did our investigation to identify them all exactly how it went there. As that was going on, and they were collecting all that evidence and trying to prepare to conduct their search warrants and arrest warrants, it was my job to continue as nothing ever happened. Uh -huh. Being with them and meeting with them so we could collect all the evidence that was going to take that phase of the case down as well as our case. So uh, I met him several more times, uh, always looking at him to see. He actually seemed more at ease, believe it or not. It was just weird. 
you know, you know, obviously he didn't let on to me that he, or anything, and I couldn't let on to him that I knew what he was involved with. But you know, it was one of those type things. You know, you keep meeting with the guy. We ended up getting another six more cops, and we set up another dual scenario where we had the warehouse operation running, and then we had what's called we called it the truck stop operation, where we set up where because like I said, at this we had to shut it down. This was our last around. The director said it. We were just finding out that they were coming to the conclusion that on the case that was going to prove the murder, they were ready to lock everybody up. So we only had so much time left to end our case. We had a lot of information that we had some other cops that we could possibly recruit. So we had to just try one more time at getting what we could. So we set up a truck stop deal where we were going to have a tractor trailer full of cocaine pull up. And uh, we were going to unload the cocaine in duffel bags on different vans and then have those vans followed out to highway areas and let them go. We had gotten enough conversations of the six new recruits through what Lynn was doing by us calling and telling him we need some more people. So we, you know, had all those things set, identified the individuals that are going to be working on that operation, um, who they were phones, we made sure to prove that they knew that uh, what was involved, that they were going to report to Lynn. Lynn was going to report to me. So a couple of them made the mistake of saying, which was good for us, that, yeah, you know, my guy got all his, his dope loaded in his car. He's ready to go. Those type of conversations uh, to Lynn, who actually we were recording on. Um, then, of course, as they followed him out, they told him the same thing. You know, all the shipments are gone. We're good. We had to tie it all up because, like I said, coming to an end because the, the other agents that were assigned to investigate the murder had uh, identified and collected everything that they were ready to conduct search warrants. And so we had to do it all simultaneously so we, we couldn't lose anybody. So we had to do all the arrests at the same time. So once they said they were ready, we had to be ready. Um, right. It's all going to come down at the same time without losing anybody, anybody escaping, whatever we had to do. So it had to go, like I just said, in order for no one to get away. We were able to do it, um, and it worked without a hitch. We got 26 in total altogether. There was a twist in in the way we decided to arrest them. We knew they were police officers, and we didn't want to have any big-time shootouts or, you know, crashing in door type things. So we devised a way. We told them that a white-collar crime investigation was being conducted by the FBI and that we wanted to get handwriting exemplars from 55 police officers to see if they had ever forged or, or written any any uh, false checks. So, oh, so this was all this was all false. This was yeah. just an excuse. Just to get everybody inside so we could arrest them without any issues. Uh So we did that. And of course, nobody was involved in any bad check writing, so everybody wasn't wasn't leery about coming in. And uh each time the right one came in, we obviously arrested him, and then the rest of them, they just let go. So we had all, without an incident, we did it that way. Then we threw another curveball into it. Now, of course, they kicked in the doors of the three shooters that same morning also, and they arrested all them, so they were caught. That morning, they went to Lynn Davis's house and Sammy Williams' house to arrest them individually. They didn't give them that ruse to come in. They decided to just hit them because they set me down and they asked me 
out of both of those individuals I dealt with for the year I was on the cover, which one do you think will flip? And I said, Sam. I think Sam will. I don't think, I think Linda's just the way he is. He, he's not going to. Plus, you don't want Lynn to flip. Yeah. He's a murderer. Right. So they arrest Lynn, and in all the time I've ever done on the cover, you never do it this way. At least I never did this way. Usually when a case ends, you never see the arrest because you're whisked away and you're gone until the trial. And if you're in the trial, then you're on to the next case, whatever you're doing. This took the time they asked me to do them a favor. And they said, Juan, we want to arrest Sammy Williams. We want to sit him down as an apartment, tell him what he's being charged with, and then hear his response, which is going to be, I didn't do it. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. And then after he gives that response, we want to bring you in and uh, identify yourself as who you really are. And I've never done that in all the time I've ever done my assignment. So I'm sitting in a van. They hit the door. Boom. You can see through the window, they pulled it up. They set him on the couch. He's on the second floor. They bring me upstairs. I can hear him saying, man, I don't know what you're talking about. I ain't do this, man. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, he's just saying that over and over and over again. He's standing up, actually, when I come in the door. I come in the door. He looks at me. But, you know, I, I shaved off the beard. Um, of course, I don't have the earrings in my ear or nothing like that. And he just stares at me. And I bring out my credentials. And I said, Sammy, my name especially that Ron Jackson of the FBI. You are under arrest. He actually went white in his face and fell back into the couch. He was going to throw up. I mean, he just lost all uh, ability to stand up and just start shivering. Then he just said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then they picked him back up, and uh, they walked him out. So our benefit, anything and everything that we needed to do tie in any loose gaps in the case, Sammy became the cooperating witness, and he was able to tell us anything and everything about any part of the case that he and Lynn discussed. He was able to do a pretty good job with the murder for hire. He didn't really know those individuals, unfortunately, um, but he had conversations about Lynn saying, I will take care of it. Don't worry about it. Those are good statements to be made. Yeah, so the case ended. We, we had three trials. Everyone was convicted. Lynn got the death penalty. The, the shooters got the death penalty. I think it was the second time. And at that time, I'm sure it's happened many more times after that, where these guys were convicted um, and received the death penalty on a federal charge. I think Lynn's case was overturned. His sentence was overturned and reversed again back to death penalty. I think he's on death row as we speak. I don't think he's ever executed. I don't know if the other guy, the shooter, has been executed or not. I don't think his got reversed. Yeah. I had to go back and testify to a sentencing hearing twice. Now, I have a couple of newspaper articles that I think talk about them being resentenced. And so I'll, I don't remember exactly, you know, what the new sentence was or if they got the death penalty again. But I will definitely have links to those articles in the show notes. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I know it, it, it changed back and forth because I remember having to go back, you know, to the sentencing hearings. Not as long as my testimony was during this trial, just, you know, you know, kind of shortened version, you know, just to kind of, you know, go through my part. They tried to tie in how we knew based on the operation we were running separately. I was able to testify to that extent. Pretty interesting. Wow. To understand that this city was under siege not just by drug dealers, 
but by police officers. It's just amazing. And to understand also that it continued at different levels or different times, you know, the corruption continued. Why New Orleans? Why does that have a reputation or over different years and different times been so corrupt? You know, it's unfortunate that that city, politicians, police officers, city officials, you know, whatever, there is this reputation, is this type of culture that is down there of this acceptable way of practice. Maybe not to the extent of what, obviously, our particular operation revealed, but if you go back into their history, you'll read a lot about corruption at so many different levels, at so many different levels. I mean, I got to say that that police department changed, oh, my God, a lot after that. I mean, you know, they recognized that just their hiring procedures had to be revamped. Their off-duty work assignments had to be revamped. There was a lot of things. Their salaries had to be changed. So a lot of things came out of our case that helped them. I'm not saying it, it solved the problem, because it didn't. But I think it helped, and it opened the eyes again uh, of the community and the different powers to be down there to, to, to recognize that there has to be a new way, a better way. I received the Medal of Valor. The Medal of Valor was awarded to me from the New Orleans Police Department, believe it or not. The chief police, Eddie Compton, wasn't the chief at the time. I was down lecturing to a National Academy class about my case, and he came into the room. He was down there for something else, and he came into the room and sat in the back of the, of the lecture hall to listen and commented several times and told me that, that he won't forget it. He, he will be in touch with me. And uh, it was amazing. They, they, they flew me down, and uh, they had a big ceremony, and, uh, and, they, and they gave me their Medal of Valor for uh, being wow. able to, you know, give them, yeah, as he said, light back to a department that had just been riddled with corruption. I also was, was brought down, and uh, and the FBI uh, Director Louis Free actually sat down, thanked me for my service, thanked me for cooperation, thanked me for everything, and there's a picture me and him in a picture together. Well, I'm just going to sit back and wait for your book and your movie. Wow. I got two questions for you. Mm-hmm. All right. When did you join the FBI and, and why did you join the FBI? I got in 1983. I wish I had a great story that led me to the FBI. I was uh, at a benefit run, 5K, 10K run, for a fallen New Jersey state trooper. Is that what you were doing before you joined the FBI? You were a New Jersey yeah. state trooper? Yeah. So I was there just to acknowledge that he was killed in the line of duty. And an FBI agent walked up to me. A recruiter from the North FBI office, and it was weird. He told me he knew who I was, and then he asked me, "I've been thinking about the FBI, and you know, and consider joining the ranks of the FBI." And I, I told him I, I didn't know a lot about the FBI, about the organization. At that point, we struck up this relationship, and then from there, he ended up sending me an application, which you know, from the time you got in, it was a gigantic. Huge 15, six page application. Yeah, it was a book. <laughs> it was a book. It was exactly right. That's the best way to explain it. I wish I had a better story of why. You know, you don't go in saying I'm going to be an undercover agent. At least I didn't. I didn't. 
as my little career started back in St. Louis, Missouri, just evolved to what I ended up doing, different cases I did, but probably three quarters of the time I was in. So when did you retire? In 07. And what are you doing now? I'm the director of security for the Philadelphia 76. Sounds like a nice job. Yes. Yes, I've uh, been doing it for a while. I started in Oklahoma, the Oklahoma State Thunder, then moved on to the Atlanta Hawks. And I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, come back home and, and, and work the Sixers in Philadelphia because I retired from the Philadelphia FBI office. All right. Well, I want to give you a chance, an opportunity to have the last word. So what would you like to say? The career was rewarding, as you know, a great job to have. You get out of what you make it. And for me, I, I wanted to be able to make an impact before I left. And I thought in my head I did, that I did do that. And so for me, it, yes, it, it was the greatest job I've ever had. It's taken me all over the world, not just the United States, and would trade those memories for anything in the world. So and I'm very thankful. And that's the end of the interview. As always... Back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find in the episode show notes, photos of Juan, photos of that Medal of Valor he received from the New Orleans Police Department, personally inscribed photo of him with director Louis Free, a link to that FBI files show featuring Operation Shattered Shield, and numerous articles about the case. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you at the bottom of the episode show notes at jerrywilliams.com. You'll find all the social media share buttons. And if you're listening to this on your device, you can share it directly. Just look for those three little dots and share the episode. And one last thing, while you're visiting my website to check out the photos and media links for Juan Jackson and Operation Shattered Shield, don't forget to join my FBI Retired Case File Review Reader Team. When you do, I will send you the FBI Reading Resource, a list of FBI books written by the FBI agents who have appeared on this podcast. Books about the FBI written by FBI agents. All you have to do is sign up when you see the pop-up. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.